policy support for low-carbon hydrogen continues to grow. But the question remains, where and how can hydrogen be deployed and at what pace? Hydrogen will play a critical role in delivering net-zero targets, and it'll provide exciting opportunities for businesses and investors. On the 20th of September, industry leaders and analysts will be meeting at the Hilton London Tower Bridge for the second edition of Wood Mackenzie's Hydrogen Conference. It's your chance to discuss the key trends in the industry with thought leaders and to explore the opportunities and challenges for low-carbon hydrogen. If you're interested in speaking, sponsoring or attending, go to woodmac.com events to find out more. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. And I'm joined today by two Energy Gang regulars, Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. I'm doing great. I'm in Aspen, Colorado at some Aspen <sighs> Institute meetings. So, Oh, very yeah. nice. It's magical out the window. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I went to Aspen in the summertime once and thought this is arguably the most beautiful place on earth. It is incredible. It reminded me of heaven, though. It's kind of, it's like heaven kind of in every respect, in that it's very beautiful, also maybe a bit boring. <laughs> um, I think it's a lovely change of pace for a couple days. I love coming in. Um, yeah. No, it, it feels like I'm in the middle of a painting, and I think there's, you know, it's nice to live in the middle of a painting, at least for a few days. So I'll enjoy it. Well, thank you very much for taking time from that, uh, in that lovely spot to talk to us today. And <laughs> Also great pleasure to welcome Amy Harder, who's the executive editor of Cypher, which is a news outlet supported by Breakthrough Energy, which is the climate investing and policy organization backed by Bill Gates. Hi, Amy, how have you been? Hello, uh, great to be here. I have been well. I, I would like to make a challenge to one of the most magical places. I recently got back from the San Juan Islands, which oh, nice. doesn't quite have the mountains as close as Aspen, but uh, you can't beat the water and the other just beautiful nature uh, up there. So Absolutely. So after all these, hearing about all these wonderful things that everyone has been uh, doing and seeing, I'm going to bring the mood right down immediately by talking about uh, climate change and the subject of climate doomerism in particular, and this idea that sort of climate change is inevitable, the world is going to fry, our civilization is going to be destroyed, and there's really nothing we can do about it. We've obviously spent a lot of time recently talking about climate change in particular. We focused a lot on it in the last show because of the record temperatures we were experiencing around the world. And it got me thinking about another aspect of what's happening with climate change and the impacts of climate change, and that is the impact on human psychology and the way we think about responses to climate change and climate action and the extent to which we need to change the energy system to respond to climate change. And there was a very specific scientific study recently published by a group of academics in Switzerland that I thought was really interesting, which provoked this thought. And it was arguing that scientists and media organizations need to rethink the way they talk about climate change. And essentially, the argument is that communicators should highlight what they call information that quantifies and projects climate change, but also proposes decision-oriented solutions rather than just going on about how terrible things are and how much worse they're going to get, because that leads to a sense of fatalism in people. I certainly think on this podcast, we try to be solutions-oriented. We try to think about the things that can be done. 
to reduce emissions, to change to a lower carbon energy system. But I'm interested in your thoughts to begin this discussion, just in general, about this idea of climate doomerism, the sense of fatalism that some people seem to have. Question, do you think it's a real issue? Is it a real problem? And is it something that actually kind of holds back action on climate change often? Because as I say, there's a sense of kind of inevitability, fatalism, nothing we can do. That means it's not worth doing anything at all. Amy, what do you think? I think if we only focus on the impacts of climate change, many people will increasingly feel this sense of doomerism that we we can't do anything. And as the impacts of global warming become more pronounced, there's a risk that this could fill the airwaves in the internet waves, whatever you want to call it, when we read online. And at the risk of a shameless plug for the publication that I lead, Cypher, we're part of the solution to help provide readers other types of content to read, which is solutions. And even when we talk about the solutions, though, such as new climate technologies and building things faster, it can feel really daunting in this space as well. And so one of our tenets of our journalism is focusing on not just laying out the challenges of here are five ways why it's so hard to build things, but also talking about the solutions. And so perhaps integrating some of that into all of the coverage about the extreme heat waves could provide readers and consumers of news a little bit more optimism. That said, climate journalism is competing with so many other topics for the airwaves and with space, right? I, before uh, helping launch Cypher, I was at Axios where Axios really meets the readers where they are. They keep things short and to the point. And when you keep things short and to the point, maybe the only space you have is to provide people how hot it is in Phoenix right now without an additional 500 words to talk about what we can do to decrease the heat, such as planting more trees in different neighborhoods in Phoenix. And so I think it's a combination of having new outlets such as Cypher, but there's a lot of others as well, really focusing on the solutions, but then also providing the actual journalism that's covering the impacts of climate change, making sure that you leave at least a little bit of space for solutions to some of these uh, extreme weather challenges. Melissa, what do you think? Do you agree that there is a problem with the way that the media often report on climate change and in perhaps also taking it to scientists, academics like yourself, other experts in the way they try and get their messages out to the public through the media? I think there's a bunch of different, I mean, there's so many layers to this onion, all right? So I'm going to just take a couple, um, but we could spend hours picking through it. When you think about, okay, how we communicate and what we're trying to say, question one is what are our goals? So if the goal of talking about what's happening to the climate already is to spur people into action, any research I've seen says that you need to do what Amy's talking about, which is not just provide the evidence about what's happening, but provide the evidence about what options you have to actually address it. If the goal is to do something else, then maybe you don't go into that space. But if the goal is to address climate change and to help people see this is serious and we should act, if that's the goal, then you need to step into the solution space. Um, I will say just personally in my own work, if you look at the mission of the Center on Global Energy Policy, which you all know I work at, we don't we talk about different pieces of work that we do, but I don't think we've ever talked about the mission of it, which is to advance evidence-based and actionable energy and climate solutions through research, dialogue, and education. 
And the word solutions is really key in that. Because when you look at a research paper, when a decision maker is looking at a piece of evidence, a piece of research, their question is, what do I do in response to this? So that's what they're looking for. So in the case of climate science, okay, it's worse than we thought, as one example. You know, this is the stuff in the headlines. It's worse than we thought. These things are coming sooner. What we thought wouldn't happen until, you know, X number of degrees change or until 2100. It's happening earlier, will happen earlier. Insert, you know, the different pieces of evidence here. A decision maker is saying, okay, policymaker, what policies can I implement to help protect the health of my community? What policy can I implement to make sure that we have reliable, affordable energy as we mitigate these really terrible impacts we're seeing? What do I do now that I have this information? And I will say that extends well beyond policymakers. That extends to all decision makers that I engage with and members of my own community, my family, my friends, just people are saying, okay, great. I see this. It seems scary. What do I do? The last thing I'll say, Ed, is I do think that doomerism has some really significant impacts on folks in the sense of I work with high school students. We talked about my trip to Iceland last year and how depressed my students were coming into it. And this was like, for a few of them, they said this was their last attempt at having some hope. And then they came out of the week and they're like, wait, we have solutions. What is this? Why doesn't anyone tell me this? <laughs> and I was like, well, that's why you're here to learn about solutions. It's hard to Amy's point. There's a lot of things you need to do, but it's important. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I think some of those sort of issues about psychological impacts, even mental health impacts of the discussion about climate change, I think are really important. I want, want to come on, onto those in a moment. Before we get off that subject, though, of the kind of the political implications of the conversation about climate change and what it means in terms of the kind of the stimulus towards action, there was a really important point you raised, Melissa, about people, when they're communicating, need to think about what they're communicating for. They need to think, what action do we want to be the outcome of our making these statements? I think there is a very legitimate debate to be had about the extent to which scientists should think about political outcomes as a response to their statements. I think, obviously, first and foremost, their responsibility is to tell the truth. And then, arguably, also, they have a responsibility to encourage action in response to the understanding they, that they've developed. I'm interested in your thoughts maybe about whether they should or shouldn't do that. And I think certainly you'll find some people will say, well, they shouldn't do that. That's it's fair for the politicians. And that's something that scientists shouldn't really get involved in. But whatever your take on that, I feel like if you are going to be communicating, you should do it with intentionality and you should be thinking about consequences. I mean, I think there was a fantastic example in reading up on some of this research about the impacts of climate communications about the use of the term climate emergency. I don't know if you've seen this this research, but so this is something many activists have been pushing. They've been saying, oh, we should, shouldn't talk about just climate change. Climate change is, um, that that sounds too kind of flat and neutral. That doesn't sound kind of sufficiently galvanizing. So we should use the term climate emergency. And that just gives a sense of the urgency with which we need to act. Okay, fair enough. Except then you do research on what impact that has on people. And this is a research paper. Let me quote from it to get the exact wording right. They say, what the researchers found was that using the words climate emergency reduced perceived news credibility and newsworthiness compared to using just climate change. And it also decreased the likelihood that people would get engaged on climate, presumably possibly because of some of those uh, issues about fatalism, possibly also because often when you kind of push people towards a position, 
they react against it and people don't like to feel they're being kind of uh, dragooned into some conclusion, into some action that they wouldn't reach on their own. And so all those kind of things, I think, are really important that people do have to think, as you say, people have to think about what they're trying to achieve when they communicate on climate change, like on everything else. What I'll say is when it comes to how we use words, it doesn't just matter what words we use and like what platforms we're using them on, but also who is using them. And then what comes with the phrase climate emergency? If it's, it's a climate emergency, you know, we're doomed. That's different than saying, this is urgent, this is an emergency, and here's how we can respond to that emergency. Like that is, a, that is a very different set of messages. And it probably does, and the research indicates it does, land differently depending on who it's coming from. As a journalist, this is something I think about a lot. And many years ago, maybe five, six, seven years ago, I wrote an article when I was at Axios uh, writing about how I don't use the word crisis when I talk about climate change. And I've actually been thinking uh, just to myself about whether or not I would write that article today. Things have changed a lot. My, my role has changed somewhat, but as a journalist, it really hasn't. And one realization I had is that climate change is, a, in the traditional sense of the words like crisis and emergency, to the average person on the street, climate change itself is actually not an emergency or a crisis. It, cre- it exacerbates crises like heat waves and flooding and things like that. And so to the average person who lives 80 years, they may not feel that climate change is an emergency or a crisis, but to the earth, which is 4.5 billion years old, it is a crisis or an emergency. And so I think our, our time spans are warped here. As, as a single human on this earth, yes, we will be feeling, we are feeling the impacts of a warming planet, which makes the crises that we live today, like heat waves, worse. But I think for most people, drawing a direct line between an emergency and climate change itself is really difficult to do because of our, by the nature of being just one human on a planet, by the inherent narrow view of our world. And there's a little bit of a contradiction in there. And I'm not sure where I come out on it. I, I don't use the word emergency in my writing. Sometimes I think I have used crisis. I tend to not. I just try to call it straight and call it addressing climate change, for example. Um, but I think I think that's one reason that there's this, these, the traditional sen- definitions of words like emergency and crisis don't lend itself to a multi-century problem like climate change. Amy, I've got a question because I think a lot about, I'm, I'm not a trained storyteller. I have a podcast where we tell stories, but I, I work with people who are trained storytellers. And I think of journalism, I mean, often it's telling a story so that people can understand you know, what is going on there. When you think about telling the story of climate and to the thing you were just saying about how your audience, to them, it is not, you know, this emergency. To them, it is not X, Y, Z, what a climate scientist might say. In their context, it is, but in your audiences, it's not. Like, how do you think about this and how you tell a story so that you're communicating the evidence effectively, but kind of meeting your audience where they are and giving them things that they want to learn about? Is what I'm asking making sense? Because I mean, yeah, you're the I mean, storyteller it, here, I think. Like, Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, number one, it's really difficult to tell stories about climate change precisely because it's so disparate and so diffuse. Uh, heat waves and floods and things like that, that, that can grab the attention. But oftentimes in the mainstream media, we end after saying 
this terrible thing happened. And oh, by the way, climate change made it worse. Sometimes they don't even include that. Uh, and so I think it's a very binary conversation when it should be sort of a, a few layers deep. So one, you talk about, you know, because we're all living in the U.S., I can I can talk about the U.S., but of course, this is a global problem. You know, you talk about a heat wave in Phoenix, then you talk about, you know, the science that backs up how heat waves are getting worse, and then you talk about the solutions. And by that time, you've lost the interest of the reader who's moved on to, you know, the various news of the day. And so I think there's that challenge. And on the flip side, so, you know, there's the two sides of the climate story, the, the impacts of a warming world and the solutions. And that's where I spend most of my time. And that is something that I think we're finally reaching a point where putting aside whether or not you think climate change is a problem, let alone an emergency, as a, as a society, we're beginning to interact with climate technologies on a daily basis. And that has more immediacy in a way that climate change uh, does not. Yeah, that's very interesting. Because Amy, you were saying you've just been sent some new data on public attitudes to climate change. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Pew Research uh, uh, came out in June, actually, with some data. But then just this past Wednesday, issued um, some focus group data that delves deeper into their results. And it was really interesting to me because I think one risk we have, the three of us and a lot of other people who live on energy Twitter, energy threads, energy LinkedIn, whatever we're calling it these days, and other people in the climate community, we all think more or less very similarly. And so there tends to be this bubble of thinking. And so I think it's important to look at some of the most established polling associations to see what they find when they poll the general public. And so this is from their finding in June, and then I'll get to what they just released this past Wednesday. Only 31% of Americans want to phase out fossil fuels completely. Uh, That's completely at odds with what the scientific community says and what a lot of people in the climate community says. And that just is surprising to me. And I think, and then so the the data they released on Wednesday went even deeper and they interviewed some of these people and several of these people linking back to our comment on doomerism and the concerns people have about the language of climate emergency, they're turned off by that. And so I do think there is among younger people, younger millennials and Gen Zers, there definitely is a very pronounced concern and anxiety about climate change. And we should not dismiss that. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit. But there's also a perhaps even larger proportion of the population that does not have those same feelings. And they're actually turned off by this idea that we're going to ban internal combustion engine cars by 2035 and do these other things. There's actually a larger debate on these topics than I than many of us might think if we're just seeing what's being posted on social media. I found that interesting. And, and maybe with the show notes, we can include the links to some of this um, data. Well, I think you're pushing on a really important point, Amy, which is when we talk about responding to climate change, um, mitigating, adapting, all the things that we will need to do. There is, I think, a lack of consensus, and, and Ed, Amy, tell me if you see it differently. In my work, I find a lack of consensus over what the goal actually is. So is the goal to reach net zero or is the goal to use no fossil fuels? Is the goal to use only renewables? Is the goal, you know, the nuclear conversation, the carbon capture conversation, these all play into it. And there is a camp of folks who say net zero can only be achieved and should only be achieved with a complete phase out of fossil fuels. 
Or there's a camp that says, look, it's going to be really decreased a lot. You know, I think you look at the different scenarios to reach net zero, you see a decrease in use. Um, the most economic pathways include that decrease in use, but it's not to zero. It's just to much, much lower than today. And then you see the other camp and you, you run the economics on it and the evidence doesn't support it, which is the idea of keep using fossil fuels and completely offset it with other mechanisms. But that first piece of are we trying to reach net zero if you're already in that camp and you're saying, let's respond to climate change, reach net zero, is the goal net zero or is the goal net zero with an asterisk and a subset of things that are acceptable within that? And do we have other goals that are messed in with that too? I just, it's still, I think there's a tension there and we aren't all on the same page about what the goal is. But when the general public thinks about those kind of issues, they're presumably not really having that kind of debate that you've just sketched out there, right? Oh, I will say my students have this debate all the time. It plays out in my classroom. Um, and I see this in public discourse because someone will point out, um, I'm at a public panel, uh, you know, in rural New York state, um, or in India, this came up when we went and had some events at our Mumbai center that Columbia has a bunch of global centers, including one in Mumbai. And we were out there talking about the energy transition and we were talking with local students and we were talking with, you know, members of the public in the energy industry. And this comes up time and time again, it comes up with is nuclear on the table is carbon capture on the table. To what extent? Should it only be an industry? Should it be other places? But even with the general public, there's the no, net zero means 100% renewables conversation, or nuclear is acceptable, or, well, we can do some stuff with carbon capture. That one comes up a lot when you go to my home state in Texas, you know? So it's like different. There, This comes up in general meetings I'm part of where it's open public events. Yeah, I think one... I think the way most Americans are really interacting with this debate now is through electric cars. And so just quoting from this Pew data that's uh, that came out just on Wednesday, this is a woman in her 30s, so not exactly, you know, we don't know the, any details on her, but she's a woman in her 30s living in the Midwest. And she says, quote, it's not practical for everyone to purchase a Tesla or be able to have the ability to plug in a car at their home or to, quite frankly, pay to charge up a car and have an additional expense or additional changes to their lifestyle that is always productive or applicable. And that's a completely reasonable statement. At the same time, just because people have these concerns doesn't mean that equals we shouldn't do anything, right? What it means is let's have the right policies in place, which is, is happening to a certain extent at the state and federal level. Let's get policies in place that can make that woman and others feel more comfortable about having electric cars. Uh, and I, I just think we were too quick to brush over some concerns people have about transitioning to cleaner energy while this doomerism debate is really taking over the airwaves in our little bubble, that then it's just turning off the general public. And so it's an important balance to remind folks that there's exciting things happening that they can participate in. Absolutely. And changes in technology that will actually make people's lives better in all kinds of ways, as well as reducing emissions. I think that's got to be a very important part of the offering. But actually, in lots of ways, I mean, yes, the woman you quoted, a lot of her concerns about EVs are absolutely 100% valid. And yet, EVs are also better in lots of ways, probably in fuel costs, certainly in running costs, maintenance, certainly in kind of acceleration and performance. So there are definitely ways to appeal to people with kind of immediate benefits from technology the air that people breathe in urban centers in particular, where you get a lot of traffic and how much that can be improved by using EVs and so on. All of that, I think, has to be a very important part of selling low-carbon technology. 
And as you say, brings us in general back to that broader point about it's really important to talk about solutions as well as just the problem. I want to come on, if we can, then to talk about that issue of kind of mental health and the way that climate change kind of weighs on people's minds. Because something else, I mean, this actually didn't really prompt this discussion we're having right now. This was entirely coincidental. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez happened to talk about exactly this issue in her Instagram Live that she did last Friday night. And she actually talked a little bit about climate doomerism and her view of it, which I thought was really interesting. Here's what she said. She said, I don't ascribe to climate doomerism because it serves no purpose. It only hurts. Climate doomerism only slows us down. It serves no real need. It doesn't help us get to a better place. And it is profoundly harmful on an individual level. So I thought that was a really interesting comment. And I know it was the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is a very polarizing figure politically, but I do think she's onto something here about sort of the dark path that doomerism can take you down. And when you look at studies of the impact that fears about climate change can have on people, and I, mean, I think it's not very clear, but certainly anecdotally, as you say, Melissa, you know, if you talk to high school students, you talk to younger people, a lot of people would have that sense of the future is bleak. There's nothing I can do. I'm not going to live to enjoy a long and uh, contented retirement because the world's going to burn. I might as well just have as much fun as I can right now. I do think there's something very interesting there about the impact that fatalism, doomerism has on people's mindset and on people's mental health. Yeah, I, I think this is definitely something that we're seeing more and more of, uh, and understandably so. I mean, there's several organizations and coalitions of psychologists and therapists have cropped up to address this very topic of climate anxiety. And it can be easy to understand why people would feel this way. And at the same time, it's this balancing act of, well, we don't want to put our heads in, like, you know, people who have denied that climate change is happening at all, the metaphor is they've had their heads in the sand. At the same time, we don't want to have our heads in the sand for other reasons, right? We don't want to pretend that things aren't as bad as they are when they, in fact, are pretty darn bad. But having some faith and belief in this idea that the world has innovated through a lot of other challenges and that we can innovate and create new technologies and new policies to help get us out of the worst parts of climate change, having some hope in that can help us a little bit. And one saying, and I, I might have said this on the podcast before, but as one good editor of mine once said, if it's a good story, say it over and over again, which is this quote from Humphrey Bogart, the late actor, who said, nothing is ever so bad that it can't be made worse. And unfortunately, that's how it is with climate change. We can always make climate change worse. So let's just keep trying to make it a little bit less bad. And for me, in my personal experience, I had never really experienced climate anxiety, which is perhaps odd. I know a lot of other climate journalists have. I've intentionally focused on solutions and technologies. I'm not traveling to the Middle East and Phoenix and China and India where, where really bad floods and heat waves have happened. Uh, so I think had I, you know, I probably would have experienced a lot of those terrible emotions. But I also think of an example when I did feel it, I watched the relatively new Apple TV show Extrapolations. And after the first episode, I felt a lot of anxiety. And I thought, whoa, I don't want to watch this because I came out of it feeling crummy. 
I ultimately did end up watching it because it was intriguing and wasn't that long and there was some innovation happening. But I limit the types of doomerism content that I could be consuming. You know, Jeff Goodall just came out with a book that calls The Heat Will Kill You First. I think that's what it's called. I'm sure it's a compelling, important book. I'm not going to read it because I think there's better ways to spend my time. Now, I, I hesitate to even say that publicly because I, I don't want to say that those types of things aren't worth reading or writing, but it's a balancing act. And there's other things that I can spend my time reading about, such as hydrogen and communicating with communities around the country about how to build things. That's how I'm spending my time. And so it's a balancing act. We don't want to keep our heads in the sand. but We also don't want to just sit down and throw our hands up. Yeah. I mean, around all this, you know, and why I think that quote grabs all three of us is because it does articulate things that we personally have experienced and or have seen our colleagues and friends and family experience. I am going to focus it on the last line. And I would like to at least go down trying than just go passively accepting that I have no agency in the world. When I read that and when I first you know, read through the quote, um, I wasn't listening to it. I was looking at the words on a piece of paper. And I thought back to the scenarios we used to create at the International Energy Agency when I was there that were in line with you know, current projections, what we were doing, what we committed to in policies, and then getting towards, you know, 50% reductions, 80% reductions, you know, we weren't even, we were talking about net zero, but it was not as, you know, firmly the goalpost as it is today. And then I think about how much we've already pulled down emissions from the futures we could see happening at that stage. And so to me, when I look at the evidence, the evidence does not support that we cannot make this better. I think that treating responding to climate change as a binary. So we hit net zero or we don't. And it's the same thing if we do or don't by 2050. That's simply not the case. The climate science doesn't support that. You know, the evidence base does not support that. So everything we do to try to reduce emissions, everything we do that reduces emissions to any degree already protects health, already helps with the situation and makes things better. And so, you know, within all this doomerism, If we get to a place, and in some conversations are at a place where we're not responding fast enough, therefore it's all over, the evidence doesn't say that to me. The evidence says we are already in a better place than we could have been and that we were on track to be in. And to the point of this quote, the efforts that we do now will bring us even closer to a healthier future. And so, okay, I'm not saying that the Paris Climate Agreement targets or anything else are not the right ones. We're not going to open up that box today. What I'm going to say is, Every single fraction of a degree we don't go up protects human lives. That's what the evidence tells me clearly. And so to Amy's point, I work on the solutions. And yeah, it'd be great if we got to, you know, full solution, insert definition here. But every single step we take improves things. And that is, I think, why I personally haven't slipped into this, oh my gosh, the sky is falling completely. Do we need to move faster? Absolutely, to protect more health and to protect a lot of our environmental systems around the world, but it's not a binary on off, you know, we reach net zero by 2050 or not. Yeah, no, 100%. I absolutely agree with that. I think, as you say, it's really important to recognize the achievements that have been made already, because they're very real, even while acknowledging that there's still an enormous amount more to be done. I do think it's quite a difficult message to get across to people to say, things are difficult, things have got worse than they were before. And they're going to continue to get worse, whatever we do, just because of the trend that the global energy system and emissions are on and the implications of that for global warming. So it's not like we can transform the situation wherever we want and make it all better very quickly. 
but there are differences between kind of difficult but acceptable outcomes and really, really bad outcomes. And what we have to do is avoid those really, really bad outcomes. And as I say, I do think often that's a tricky message to get across to people. But that said, I also think, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was saying, as you've been saying, the benefit that we get, all of us, from thinking we are doing something about this, whatever it might be, maybe going on a podcast and talking about it. So Ocasio-Cortez has one route, and she's talking about politics and being involved in that way. You might not think that's appropriate, but people can do an enormous amount in the energy industry, work in lots of other industries that will be affected by climate change and, importantly, have an impact on climate change, or just in changing people's lifestyles and the things we do and the way we behave and the way we think about our own individual impact on the climate. There are lots of ways we can address this, which you can say none of us individually is going to make a huge difference. And maybe even millions of people acting together are not going to make a huge difference. But the difference it does make is to yourself because you feel like you're doing something, you're not doing nothing, and you're not being completely helpless and hopeless in the face of these vast impersonal forces set both by the governments of the world and big businesses and the decisions they take and by nature, which stands above everything and dictates to us how we're going to live our lives. Do you think that's right? So I will say in all of this, the evidence does not say we don't have the ability to affect this. The evidence doesn't say we haven't already affected this and made it better. The evidence doesn't support the idea that this is hopeless and that we have nowhere to go. The evidence shows that this is hard. (laughs) This is really hard. There's a lot of stuff we have to do to mitigate the effects of all this. When it comes to how different people approach this, Amy, I'm really curious what your thoughts are on this, but I'll go back to like what I said in the beginning, which is how we communicate on different topics. We we have different purposes. I don't think a climate scientist is failing because they report on the thing they're the expert in and what they've dedicated their career and their life to doing, which is tracking the science, getting the evidence together, et cetera. That is what they are working towards. They are working towards making sure we have a sound evidence base from which to make decisions. And to believe that everyone should be everything all the time to everyone, I mean, come on, like that's not reasonable. I have chosen personally to sit in my space. I don't take ice core samples. I don't, you know, go and measure concentrations in, in the air. I, I do it for other pollutants, but, but that's because I'm a nerd and a wonk and I study air pollution. But the point being, when we're looking at all the things we need to make informed actions, we rely on a lot of different people in a lot of different roles. And it is a very important role to be the scientist who gets the primary data just as it is a very important role to step into where I spend my time, where Amy spends her time communicating on the solutions that result from that information. Okay, given that we know this, here are the things that seem to be practical paths forward. If we couldn't say, here's where we are, we couldn't get to the next step of now here's where we can go and how we get there. So I think there are valid choices that people make given the roles that they play in this world and that they're called to play. I have made my choices to where I spend it. I'm grateful for climate scientists who spend so much time in the field gathering data and evidence and then publishing it so that I can use it to understand what is the challenge we're facing. Definitely. Just one last comment for me on this. One thing that I've been pondering a lot lately is that on the one hand, as you said, Melissa, the evidence shows that we are making progress. I I, I saw one report uh, that said, I think collectively the actions that we're taking now will produce a 2.7 degree 
rise in temperature. I think that's Celsius, but please check me if I'm wrong on that. Versus a few years ago, it was 3.5. We've reduced the heating of the planet by quite a lot over the last decade or so. That's extremely hard to communicate to people. And so the, the numbers and the science say one thing, but then people feel a different way. And we see that all over the place. Like all the data shows that we are living in a more prosperous, healthier world. Obviously, the pandemic was a setback, but generally speaking, the hard data shows that we all should be happier because we're living in a better world. But the data shows that actually a lot of us are not happier. And climate change is one really difficult part of that is, okay, we're making this progress. It's still really hard. And I feel really crappy. And then we get into psychology. And and I, I said this before, but I think it bears repeating. We are already interacting with climate technologies, whether it's an electric car or a heat pump or alternative proteins. And yes, there's going to be some fumbles and there already have been. But I think once people start to interact with these technologies in an exciting way, we'll start to see sort of the, the churn of human innovation happen. And then maybe people will start to feel a little bit more hopeful. But there's definitely a gap between what's actually happening and the way people feel in climate change, but in a lot of other topics as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that's right. But I feel like now I should change the subject a bit. We've been talking about how we need to talk about solutions. There is one particular solution that I was very keen to get to talk about today, which is carbon utilization. And that is the idea of capturing carbon through whatever means, keeping it out of the atmosphere. And rather than what happens with carbon capture and storage, just pumping it underground somewhere, taking that carbon dioxide and using it to make useful products, which can then, essentially the big argument in favor of this kind of technology is that it provides another revenue stream for carbon capture, which can help the economics. And if you're doing something useful with the carbon dioxide, that's a much better thing to do with it than as they just pumping it into the ground. And I was particularly struck, Amy, by there was a story you ran in, in your publication, Cypher, where you were talking about some of the sort of tensions around this in the US right now and some disagreements over, well, it's about sort of the Inflation Reduction Act and the impact it can have on carbon utilization as opposed to carbon storage, right? Yeah, certainly. Well, this was a great story done by our DC-based reporter, Amina Saeed, who uncovered this uh, interesting wrinkle in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is uh, giving subsidies to companies that capture carbon. The subsidies are different levels depending on what you do with it. And something I learned in working with Amina on this story is that the companies that are storing the carbon dioxide underground actually get more money from the government compared to the companies that are utilizing the carbon, turning it into things like sustainable aviation fuel or uh, other types of fuel, or even things like fizzy water and, and vodka. Those are very minor uses, but nonetheless, they're the ones that get a lot of headlines. So the companies that are utilizing carbon are a little upset, and there's actually a piece of legislation pending in Congress that seeks to create parity between these two types of uses, um, either storing it or, or recycling it, utilizing it, to make them equal again. So then there's not this disparity. Now, the, the reason why they're different is actually it makes sense and there was some thinking behind it, which is that companies that store the carbon are not getting any value from that carbon because they're just putting it underground or perhaps under the sea compared to the companies that are utilizing it. Ultimately, with time, as prices come down, they will have a profit from that recycled carbon dioxide. And so in theory, they could recover some of their costs. It's an interesting, one of the many interesting 
fights and, and squabbles that are coming up because of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think in this case, time will tell how much of an impact it has. The whole purpose of carbon utilization is not necessarily to really get amazingly good at recycling carbon and run this big, happy, you know, circular world. It's actually to help bring down the cost because you can charge more, you know, rich people will buy captured carbon water, right? Fizzy water. And that will help bring down the cost for everybody. The vast majority of carbon, because we've emitted so much into the sky, will have to be stored. But there's still that important role for carbon utilization. And just one last comment here. Carbon is the trash of our climate change era. And if we're going to store it underground, there's an argument that it needs to be subsidized more, much in the same way that our government, local governments mostly, help to facilitate our garbage industries. Yeah, so around all of the discussion of like carbon tech and carbon capture, as much as I find it scientifically nifty uh, to look at direct air capture in Iceland and filling up the pore space, so you know, filling the Swiss cheese and the basalt, you know, rocks, that kind of stuff, filling in the holes. Um, to Amy's point, it's like how do we get costs down by turning a waste stream into a value stream? So it's like how do you think about recycling different materials? Oh, can I make it into a vest or a sweater or something else that has another life? And if I can get the cost down of that process such that it actually ends up saving me money over time. It's no longer a, this would be good for me to do. It's actually, this makes economically rational sense for me to do. And I'm going to capitalize on an opportunity. And when you get that, you get momentum. You get snowball effects. Like, oh, I can make money doing this. Excellent. Um, so I know at the Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with um, – we're in the School of International Public Affairs and in partnership with the College of Engineering and then our um, Columbia Tech Ventures group, thanks to a grant from NYSERDA, um, the New York State Energy Research Agency, we have been looking at a couple of different buckets because there's a lot of things that you could like flow into this overall category of things. But we look at CO2 capture and how we do that effectively. There's a key part of this, which is like, what does the actual captured stream look like? What are the purities? And then what can you actually use it for? Um, the other two things we look at are actually like CO2 to building materials and then looking at how you take CO2 and actually make it into chemicals and fuels and other types of materials. So some of the really tricky, tricky, tricky parts of industry to decarbonize are where we use a lot of fossil fuels today, where we produce a ton of emissions today. What can we actually do to turn those molecules into the things we want by recombining them in different ways to actually get useful products? It's one of those, again, back to like the silver buckshot or whatever, whatever the right phrase is. It's a set of tools and a set of things that when I look at all the practical pathways forward, we absolutely need. All the other stuff is just isn't enough. We have to have this entire set of solutions all be deployed at once, not just our favorite two. And how promising is it, do you think? I mean, is it something that's close or is it still a way off? So I think there's a lot of work to be done. And the key is what are we going to do this decade? So right now, we know how to build wind turbines. We know how to build solar panels. We can talk about supply chains, especially around like batteries for EVs and other things. We can talk about not just the mining, but the refining and then turning it into the thing to the thing to the thing that becomes the thing we want. But we know technologically how to do all that. We're still figuring out some pieces of technologically how to utilize carbon in different ways. And we do have some things. So you can inject CO2 into cement and we know how to do that. And it's about Actually, okay, now that we have a certified safe cement that you put greenhouse gases into to make it stronger and you need less, how do we do adoption amongst the construction industry? That's a different problem. That's not technological problems. Some of these petrochemicals and then other building materials and, and the creative things we haven't even thought of, those are much earlier stages of the, what is it, the TRL level, the technology readiness level curve. We're in the earlier stages. 
But the point is when we're going to net zero, we need to do all the things we know how to do that are economic today, build out a ton of renewables, figure out firm dispatchable power. We need to do a lot of that stuff while we are figuring out the best economic cases for utilization of these sets of molecules. So we do both. Absolutely. As I understand it, as you say, some of those sort of building materials uses are particularly good because what they do is they lock up the carbon dioxide for a very long time. I think I'm right in saying, Amy, that I mean, if you put it into fizzy drinks, that's really not great at all, right? Because obviously you open the bottle, and <laughs> some of it gets released, and then you drink it and you release the carbon dioxide yourself. So there are definitely different levels of carbon utilization that provide different amounts of storage in terms of you know the duration that they lock stuff up for. Yes. And that's part of the genesis behind a circular economy in that if we get into this utopian world, which spoiler alert, we probably won't, but you know, if we're just cycling carbon dioxide in and out of our drinks and our jet fuel, we'll live in this world that everything is, is great. I think it's less about being able to say, oh, we're storing that carbon in your drink and more about let's charge somebody who has the money $20 for a fizzy water uh, that using captured carbon is the novelty of it. And that helps generate awareness, excitement, and helps bring down the cost of just capturing carbon and putting it into the ground in the, the most boring and important way possible. Same thing can be said for more significant uses, such as sustainable aviation fuel, which just a few hours drive from here in Seattle, where I am in Moses Lake. Moses Lake, I'm going to make a reporting trip there uh, someday because it's so close and it's a hotbed for so many things. There's a company there building a sustainable aviation fuel plant. And so that's the same thing where you can use captured carbon to make that fuel ultimately will be burned. But nonetheless, these uses are important for reasons beyond storing. And ultimately, we're going to have to find places to store all the carbon and move the carbon. And that puts us back at the conversation of how do we build things? I saw just the other day a headline that North Dakota rejected a carbon dioxide pipeline permit. We're going to have to have these debates about who wants a carbon pipeline in their backyard. Not many people. But nonetheless, that's going to have to happen. And we're going to have to find places to store it, which is also a very tricky geological question. Yeah, those are great points. And just one final thought on this, just wanted to go back, Melissa, to something you were saying, which we started this podcast talking about attitudes that are inimical to climate action that tend to hold us back. And I do think Another whole, apart from doomerism, there's another whole category of attitudes, which is sort of favorite solutionism. There is only one answerism. And, you know, people who say, talking about this earlier, everything has to be 100% renewables, or people who say, no, renewables are terrible. They're never going to do the job. It can only be nuclear. Or people who say, no, we have to keep using fossil fuels and it has to be with carbon capture if we're going to get to net zero. Any one of those solutions might be appropriate at the right time, at the right place. It is never going to be appropriate for the whole world all the time. Even if it is ultimately that, we certainly don't know this now. And so at the stage we're at, we still just have to keep trying a lot of different things, see what works, what doesn't, what's appropriate at particular times in particular places, because otherwise we're not going to make enough progress overall. Yeah. So I'll dig into that word appropriateness because there's technological appropriateness. Do you have water? Do you have wind? Do you have sun? Do you have the resources we're talking about? Um, what do you use it for? You know, And what does that mean in terms of the need for it to be 24-7 or maybe it doesn't? You know, those types of things. Um, do you have a heavy industry-based economy? Is it mostly service sector? I mean, different characteristics. Is it appropriate? Does it technologically work? And does it serve the needs that you have? 
the other part of appropriateness is appropriate in your context based on the priorities of your community. And I'll use that statement loosely. You know, there are parts of the United States, there are parts of sections within individual states that would be like, yeah, CO2 pipeline, let's do this thing. And then other ones that are like, nope, nope, don't get that, you know, thing near me. And the question is, and what going back to the evidence and how we communicate things is about being very clear about what the evidence says that exactly what you said Ed was talking about earlier, which is we need a lot of different things to get to a robust solution. I'm talking about clean, affordable, reliable. The second piece of it is focusing not on individual techs and you know individual technologies, but focusing on the characteristics of stuff that we need. So for power, the clear example I talk about all the time is we need 24-7, 365, reliable, affordable power. The things that give you that are a combination of variable renewables, energy storage, and firm dispatchable power. Note, there are multiple technologies in all three of those buckets. It's the attributes of those things that matter. It's not the specific tech. Now, if you decide as a community that bucket one includes a lot of, you've got a lot of sun, so it includes a lot of solar, you've got some wind, maybe it includes that, or some geothermal or something else, so that goes in the firm dispatchable bucket. The point is, do you have the combination of all three things? The evidence says you need characteristics, attributes. The evidence doesn't say, here's the one technology that you need. That is a great point. A great note, I think, to end on, unfortunately, because we're not going to have to wrap up. I know, Melissa, Amy, you've both got places to be. Just before I let you both go, um, have you got free electrons to end on? What do you want to leave us with? Amy? Yeah, well, on, on the topic of mental health, I was really struck by a recent trip I made will watching the other day um, from the San Juan Islands, which I mentioned earlier is an archipelago just north of Seattle. The whole experience really conjured up a lot of emotions for me. First, we, we saw the orcas. We had to go all the way to Canada to see them because they weren't in the San Juans. Now, these aren't the types of orcas that are endangered. They're the ones that eat seals, and they're thriving quite well, actually, in the waters in the Pacific. But it was still awe-inspiring to see these creatures. And I learned chatting with our host, Orcas Enchanted, in case anybody's up there, want to give them a plug. I learned that within 20 years, we may be able to communicate directly with whales thanks to advancements in artificial intelligence, which is literally out of the movies. That's a part of one of the themes of extrapolations on Apple TV, where if you've seen it, you will know that Meryl Streep is a whale. And in fact, the critics really mocked the show for that. But I happen to like it if we can just suspend our basis in reality. But in fact, we're not that far off. I don't think the whales will have Meryl Streep as their voice, but it looks like we're getting close to that, which is just fascinating. And so lastly, though, as we were motoring back from Canada back into the San Juans, I saw a heavy blanket of wildfire smoke hovering over Vancouver, BC, British Columbia, a reminder of the impacts of a warming planet that was a wildfire nearby Vancouver. And it was just hovering there. And, you know, wildfire smoke is notoriously hard to predict where it will go, how long it will stay and when it will leave. And oftentimes it's the wind patterns. And it was just it was a glass calm day on the water and the smoke was just stuck over Vancouver. And so the whole experience was really reminding me of why we're doing what we're doing. Yes, there's some scary things that are happening, but also a lot of really cool things uh, to save and to, to wait for in the future that when we get to see what the whales have to say and something tells me it, it won't be nice considering some orcas are attacking boats off the coast of Spain. Nonetheless, uh, that was certainly a fun, awe-inspiring experience for me. Wow. Yes, that is quite the contrast. Um, Melissa, what's yours? As you're talking, Amy, I have to say, uh, 
what is it the song they call him flipper flipper faster than lightning like i want to talk to flipper i know it's a dolphin not a whale okay fine but um, anyway childhood fun. orcas are dolphins as well technically no Yes. I should know that. A, I grew up on the ocean, but all right, I'm learning. But I'm having these childhood flashbacks to um, amazing, amazing shows. So I'm, I've got two. They're related. The first one, which is going to be my second, but Amy, it, it's right off of what you were saying. I don't know if y'all listen to like the daily. Um, I don't listen. I, I have podcasts I listen to all the time, and then I have ones I pop in and out of. And I was doing a long road trip last week, and I ran across this one about wildfires in Canada, and it's like fighting Canada's unending fires, and it was an episode of The Daily. It was fascinating because it talked about the evolution of fire science from where we went to suppress all fires to, wait, 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 we actually want burning to happen in a more controlled manner, but a more controlled manner, a more intentional manner, small fires, we don't have the extreme ones. And then now what folks are seeing in terms of like the never-ending fire season and how climate change is affecting things and what can be done about it. And they talk to a bunch of like hotshots who are, you know, on the edge of these fires. They go all over North America and different parts of the world fighting these fires and kind of how the evolution of how you fight fires has changed. I thought it was a really good um, podcast. The other one I'll just mention, which is also in the New York Times, is an op-ed that was published by the director of our center, Jason Bordoff. And it's titled, Behind All the Talk, This is What Big Oil is Actually Doing. And it talks about a lot of very nuanced things we're seeing in the analysis. And it talks about what happens with you know, for-profit energy companies that have shareholders when they make different energy transition investments and announcements. And I just, for those of us who spend our time stepping through a lot of the nuance of these issues... I think it's a really good discussion. And I do not just say that because it comes from someone I respect in terms of their expertise in this. You know, obviously I do. And it's not just because this person is affiliated with our center. I just feel like it steps into kind of a tension point that maybe we don't acknowledge as we're trying to supply fuel today, look into the future. And we have for-profit companies with certain obligations and certain duties and like how this is all just playing out. So it steps in. It came out this weekend and just it was a good read. I read that and really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it does sound really interesting. I'm definitely going to check that out. I haven't read it, but I will do. So, Melissa, if you're not going to limit yourself to one free electron, nor am I. So <laughs> I have two, but they, well they will be quick. Well one, one is going to be a plug for a future <laughs> show, which is, it is, of course, a date that will be marked in everybody's diary. Next week, it's going to be one year since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed. And a couple of my colleagues at Wood McKenzie have just published a note on kind of, you know, what's happened in that year and what have we learned and where there's been progress and where there hasn't. One of the things they highlight is the lack of real progress on permitting reform and the ability to get low carbon energy infrastructure built and particularly grid infrastructure. That's going to be the focus of a forthcoming show, which we're just planning at the moment that we're going to broadcast in September. So look out for that one. And then the other thing I have to talk about is the movie Oppenheimer. Have either of you seen it? No, it's on my list. I absolutely loved it. Blown away by it. And just obviously some really interesting parallels when people often talk about uh, what we need is a Manhattan project for clean energy. The Manhattan project, of course, being the project to develop the atomic bomb. And just really interesting in the sort of the interplay between science and politics and personality and what it took to make that happen. I think probably there's quite a lot that's not going to be directly relevant to the energy business. But still, it's a really fascinating story, very, very well told, 
brilliantly performed and so on. So I would very highly recommend it to people. Well worth checking out. So I think we do have to leave it there then, but many thanks, Amy, for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Many thanks to you, Melissa. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Amy. Enjoyed the conversation. I feel like we could go for about four more hours on topic number one today, at least. So I look forward to continuing it on and offline. Indeed. Indeed. Like all the best discussions, better to feel like you could have a whole lot more than you wish you had a whole lot less, I think. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. Many thanks to our producers, Tavi Biggins, Gilchrist, and Sam Nash. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, whatever it might be. It feels increasingly tedious to run through all of our social media presences, but here we go. Deep breath. You can find us on Twitter, or what used to be called Twitter. Is it now called X? I still don't know. If you put in twitter.com, you still get there. But anyway, that thing. We are at the Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm on Mastodon as at edcrooks at mastodon.energy. I'm also on threads as at ed.crooks. And I'm on blue sky as at edcrooks.bsky.social. I'm actually on LinkedIn as well if uh, anyone wants to come find me there. As I said before, I can't wait for this confusion to resolve itself a bit. Generally, competition is great, but when it comes to social media offering essentially identical services, not so much. But anyway, please do send us your feedback any way that works for you. And we'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.